On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Yuri Angestrom. He is an investor and partner at YesVC. We're going to be talking about angel investing. A couple interesting things. You know, obviously, Yuri has a great background in the VC space. Uh, he's got some great insights in, in terms of how you can get into angel investing. I, I think a lot of us out there always wonder how do you see those uh, angel investing tags on uh, X and LinkedIn, all that kind of stuff. And also, how does angel investing help if you're a founder, maybe if you're an executive? How does it actually benefit your career? Yuri, thanks for being on uh, and, and wanting to chat with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is, this is a question that's, you know, really um, come up a lot with, you know, we're a venture capital firm. And so we invest in founders of companies of all stages. But even if you're just starting out nowadays, even if you're still in school, everyone's curious about angel investing, right? It's become kind of a meme, right? There's, you know, there's stocks, there's a lot of platforms out there. We're even investors in, in one of them that allow you to basically deploy very small tickets. We're just talking, you know, maybe a few thousand dollars into companies and diversify, right? You know, because everyone knows that great startups make their owners rich, but most of them fail. So it's a good idea to build a portfolio. Even if you're running your own company, it's a good idea to do that. Alongside of that, even if your company is successful, you might find that actually helps you build your company because now you have information access and are growing your network by supporting your peers. And you can hire out of those companies. You can, by helping them succeed, also benefit from their success, not just financially, but through their networks when you're building your own company. So it's kind of a win-win. Absolutely. Interesting. I I guess um, just to make sure everyone is on the same page in terms of angel investing, because there's all kinds of different investing we, we hear about, you know, obviously seed, we hear different rounds, you know, friends and family. What makes angel investing different? Well, you know, let's just start from the principle. So, you know, what you're looking at or should be looking at isn't really necessarily even the strict version of just angel investing cash into companies early, which is really what most people, I think, would assume angel investing means. What you're really looking at is you want to get ownership in the winning companies, right? And there's a few ways you can do that. There's actually five ways. The most obvious one is that you found a successful company yourself. Obviously, as a founder, you own a big chunk of that company. Right. And so when that company has success, you're going to be the beneficiary, but the prime beneficiary of that. The second way, which is what we VCs do is we invest cash. Right. So we pull cash. Some of it comes from our own pockets. Others are, you know, LPs, the limited partners who invest in our funds. And so we end up with a pool of cash that we can then deploy into what we think will be the most likely winners. So that's the second way, right? Which is great. If you happen to be rich, if you're liquid, you can just invest cash into companies and then wait for those companies to exit, right? Now, a third way of getting on to the cap table of a company is that you join as an employee, right? Which is actually something that's a really smart thing to do. If you're just starting on your career, you should think about, oh, this company 
it's on a high growth curve. I'm not joining as a founder or co-founder, but as an early employee, I can get significant ownership. And if the company gets big, I'll get rich, right? There's a couple more, right? One is you can just be an advisor. Um, maybe you don't have any liquidity, but you know the founders or you can convince them to take you on and basically do some sweat equity in the form of advice usually. This is another reasonable way. Typically, the advisors get very small ownership stakes, but the benefit is that unlike an employee, you can probably advise multiple companies simultaneously as long as they're not direct competitors. So it allows you to diversify that way, even without having to deploy your own capital. And then the last part is you can consult for equity, which people do is if you're a good negotiator without joining the company, you can say, Hey, um, why don't you guys pay me in equity instead of paying me all in cash? And that's a way to get on the cap table, right? So. As you know, as your career progresses, you're probably going to end up, you know, combining all five in some form. At least most of you know the people I can think of. You know, yes, sometimes you work for a company, other times you invest cash, sometimes you advise, you know, sometimes you might even found a new company. So all of these are kind of mixing up. Um, but the thing that I think we should really focus on is what you do with the money that you make, the cash that you make, because what you should be doing ideally is holding some of that back and saving it somewhere on a bank account. Of course, you want to diversify into things like, you know, just, you know, public stocks, whatever, real estate, whatever, you know, you build up your nicely diversified portfolio. But even if you don't have a lot of cash, if you're in startups, one of your kind of information advantages is that you should have knowledge of what the good companies are earlier than other people, right? And so I think it makes sense to think about it as a portfolio and say, look, you know, maybe I have $10,000 this year that I can afford to save and deploy into my investments, my angel investments. And then over time, you know, next year, it might be another 10K, but perhaps you know, in three years time, I can afford to put in 15K. And so you kind of make a plan for how much you can deploy over the next few years. And then you divvy that up between how many investments you actually intend to make. So you end up with some average ticket that is basically, you know, the number of companies that you decide to back over the course of your investing period. And this is, by the way, what VCs do. This is what every angel investor should be doing, in my opinion, is sort of building up a portfolio sort of in a disciplined manner. Because one of the, or what I've what I've discovered, and I use, I've, you know, I've done made all these mistakes myself, is that people typically start angel investing sort of ad hoc. It's because you meet someone, maybe it's your buddy, and they say, hey, you should should you know you should back our company and you're like sure i like this person uh, they seem like they're smart i will invest because i have some money on my bank account that, that i can deploy and so the first mistake people usually make when they start out angel investing is they invest only in their friends or inbound right basically i come to you i say hey amir can you invest in my company and you're like oh okay well sure here you go right um which is 
oftentimes a mistake because if you're thinking about it strategically, it, unless you're a very famous investor, you have to basically strike gold and win a lottery ticket in order to have the first person that just walks up to you, who happens to be a roommate in college or whatever, uh, be the next Mark Zuckerberg. So more likely is that you're actually going to have to go out and seek out the best founders, right? Now, so the first mistake people, common mistakes people make when they're starting out is they invest only in their friends or in inbound. The second common mistake is that they end up investing way more than they actually should, that their ticket size is way over their actual budget. Like I remember, I think um, my first angel investment, I invested 500K, you know, and I had just sold a company to Google. So I had a lot of money, but looking back, I probably should have put in 50, not 500, but I thought this is great. You know, I love this company. It's going to be big. And so, and what, what ended up happening is, you know, the company is still around, but I still haven't gotten my money back. And that was like 2007, right? Luckily, I made some other small investments. I invested like 50K into a company that then, you know, became a many billion dollars worth company that returned me a great deal. But, you know, I probably thinking back should have balanced it out a little bit, right? And so the second common mistake is that your ticket size is way over budget. And then thirdly, that you don't place enough bets. So, cause what happens is you're like, okay, well, now I just put in all this money and suddenly you don't feel so rich anymore. And you're like, damn, I should stop. Like I shouldn't make any more, especially because you know how long it takes. It can take 10 years for you to get any returns. It certainly took me before I got any significant returns. You know, it took almost 10 years, right? So, you know, you're basically investing too much into too few companies and then not making enough bets to actually increase your likelihood of getting any one of them to work out. So those are the three common mistakes. And there's a couple more. The fourth one is that somehow people tend to think that angel investing means you invest only very early stage, early stage only, like really at the founding. If, you know, that's kind of like there's this idea that the angel round is the very first round and it's your friends and family and it's before the VCs really get in there. But if you think about it, what ends up happening is the people who are the least liquid, that's, you know, us, you know, just regular people personally are taking the most risk. Right. And in my opinion, if you're again thinking strategically, then you probably should be spreading your bets out a little bit. You should just be looking at the great companies, the ones that you really think are fantastic and trying to get into those kind of regardless of stage. So you end up having some diversification also in your angel portfolio. So they're not all early stage bets. Obviously, those bets have the highest multiplier theoretically because, you know, if one of them gets big, you probably invested in a very low valuation relative to where you're going to exit. But it's also usually going to take the longest time. And so investing into some really amazing private company right now, I don't know, take OpenAI, whatever, that's already very valuable, but you still think has a lot of upside. Uh, maybe it's going to, you know, IPO at some point in the next couple of years. You know, you think it might get really popular. You know, it might, you know, be worth 5x what it is now. So maybe it's not going to be 100x, 
Um, but you, you still see that before the public markets see that. You might be able to get in there and get some allocation through a secondary on one of the markets like 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 stonks for instance which is now called sandhill markets which you know specializes in these so again fourth mistake commonly made by angels is to invest early stage only instead of diversifying across stages and then the last fifth mistake that i certainly made is that you skip vintages which means that you know basically you just at one point feel liquid, it's the right moment for you. And so you're like, okay, great. Let me place a couple of angel bets now. And then for whatever reason, you decide, oh, I should stop investing because I've already made four bets. And so I'm just not going to angel invest for a few years, which really isn't what you should be doing because any professional investor will tell you that you want to diversify not just across stages, but across time. You know, VCs talk about vintages. For instance, you know, right now people think the 2021 vintage was probably very overvalued because valuations were sky high. That was a fantastic year to exit, but it was probably not the best year to enter a company as an angel. Same thing now, valuations have fallen a lot. So you can probably get into some company at a much more reasonable price. And that's just the nature of markets. So what you want to do, again, is by being disciplined, is build. And I really recommend, if you're thinking about angel investing, is open Google Sheets or an empty Excel file and create you know, a, a small table. Say, here's my first call, May. It'll be your vintage. You'll start from, it's now the year 2023. So maybe you start from the year 2024, whenever you plan to start. And then make it go down seven, eight, maybe 10 years, 24, 25, 26. And then make another column and say, this is the committed capital. This is how much I'm planning to commit that year. So maybe your, you know, initial commitments per year are going to be very small. Maybe it's just 5K, 10K, 50K. I don't know, whatever it is that you can afford. Um, but then maybe over time, you're going to be able to start recycling capital when some of those early investments start paying off. So perhaps already in year five, and by the way, Horsley Bridge, one of the classic sort of, you know, very established venture capital LP investors once told me that they calculated the average outsized exit was only four and a half years. So perhaps year five, you know, if you're doing your angel job well, you're going to start seeing some returns. And then you can recycle those back into your investments and actually deploy a lot more capital. So over time, the assumption is if you start out with 10K a year, you might be deploying 100K a year, 500K a year, 5 million a year, depending on how well you do, right? And then you split that by having like column C, which is just your number of investments. How many bets am I going to place? And then basically your committed capital that year divided by your number of planned investments will give you your average ticket size. So just for the sake of argument, let's say I'm planning to invest $2,000 in 24, and I'm planning to invest that into four companies, that would give me an average ticket size of $500 of that. It doesn't mean every time you're going to invest 500 bucks into each one religiously, although that could 
just be how you do it. It just means your average bet, right? So it could be that there's something that comes along that's really amazing. So you decide to double down and invest, you know, a thousand into that. And then a few that, you know, are kind of very binary, like they're uncertain, but if they happen to work out, then they could be huge. So maybe you put a little bit of a smaller, maybe only 250 bucks into each because you're expecting that most likely you're going to lose it. But just, you know, on the, on the chance that this is another Uber, even that smaller ticket is still going to give you a massive return if it works out. So you're averaging out, but it's good to understand what your average ticket is. Because what happens now is once you've built this out, then anytime you talk to someone interesting, you're at, you know, one of the parties, you know, organized by that Googler that everyone's talking about in Silicon Valley that's organizing a lot of tech parties or whatever it is you are, right? You're going to meet people and you're going to say, yeah, you know, um, I, I do angel investing for sure. Yeah, I, I, I angel invest. I'm an angel. And one of the things that people are going to ask is, oh, okay, well, what's your ticket size? Like, how much do you typically invest? And you can say, yeah, yeah, my average ticket size is $5,000, right? Because you've done your math, you know what it is. Um, and so that just kind of legitimates you and turns you into someone people take more seriously because it means, yeah, you actually have an idea of what you're doing, which frankly, most angels do, don't. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I, ex- I, I explain this to my founders and I've seen people build these tables, you know, build their spreadsheets and develop them over the years. And it's kind of amazing. I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine, um, you know, who, who's a designer and, you know, has worked at places like Tesla and Apple and big companies and also started his own companies. But it wasn't until a few years ago that he started angel investing. And pretty quickly, he's built a portfolio that's now worth, you know, several tens of millions of dollars. Granted, it's all on paper, but, you know, and it's a combination of sometimes he angel invests, sometimes he advises and he gets equity. Some, I mean, I've been amazed actually at um, what some startups are willing to give him when he asks. But before we did this exercise, he never really even thought to ask. Um, you know, he would just charge them a small, you know, some consulting fee, maybe cash, or maybe just help them out. Um, because they were his friends, but he never really had a model. And now he can say, oh, here's my ticket size. You know, I'd love, you know, this is what I, I'm an angel. And, uh, you know, if you um, want me to get involved as an advisor, here's my standard advisory terms. And so it just turns it into a much more professional enterprise that people take more seriously. And that's how you get on the cap table of these growth companies. There's so much to unpack. I guess question one, and I think I have a few that you know it might help everyone listening kind of get some context. Is it's obviously it's a lot. You know, investing in general is hard. Um, but before we get to some of that, that yeah, you know, what happens in terms of the legality, right? Like I'm thinking, I'm listening to this, going, I talk to somebody, I meet somebody, I hear of something I want to invest in, I want to put in a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand, whatever. I want to make sure that I have legal ownership should i come up with or should i have some some that legal collateral ready to go or 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 is it i can you know is it the company that should be bringing that legal terms how do i make sure that i'm protected from that that legal standpoint of investing and making sure that it's on the up and up got it yeah 
Well, there's a few aspects there to unpack. One is basically when you make an investment, there has to be paperwork, right? It means that you're wiring capital, you're essentially wiring cash from your bank account, one of your bank accounts to the company account. And you want to make sure that that happens in a legal way and you're actually getting your ownership in the company. So there's a lot to unpack there. The other is that, you know, you need to make sure that you're allowed to make that investment and the company needs to know that as well. So let's talk about the first topic initially. So, you know, most commonly, and I think probably in the most cases, it'll be sufficient as an angel that you just work using standard Y Combinator safes. So the safe simple agreement for future equity is an agreement that makes it very easy for you if you don't operate a large legal team of your own to invest basically at any time into any company that's willing to sign a safe with you. Um, and that can happen even if no one else is investing at the same time. Because normally what happens, and before safes really became popular, you tended to have to wait. And this still happens a lot, is that you'll talk to a founder and they will say, oh, I'd love to have you invest in our next round. And then you're like, fuck, now I have to wait. (laughs) So what you want to do is say, okay, that's great, but actually I'd love to invest today. So why don't we just do a safe in between your rounds? Um, and what this gives you is sometimes, okay, maybe sometimes you actually do want to wait and see if the company has any legs, but you're probably going to lose out on some of the upside by waiting because if the company turns out to have success, then they're going to raise their next round at a much higher valuation. And you, you, you want to get in on a low valuation as possible once you've, you know, basically decided that you have conviction over a company. And so the best founders, and this applies to anyone out there who is also a founder, maybe considering or doing angel investing, is I I've, I recommend that you actually are ready to take on people at any time in between rounds on safes. I've seen our best founders do this because what you're building is an army of supporters who basically will follow you into a burning building because they are now on your cap table. Um, They have skin in the game. Um, They will go on Twitter to, you know, retweet your tweets. They they will go on Reddit to argue in favor of your products in the relevant forums. They will tell their friends and family to try you out. They will call their banker and convince their banker to help you out with a loan when your business can't get a loan. Whatever it is they will do, they will do because they're on your cap table. So oftentimes, people who are just starting out in entrepreneurship will say, oh, I want to keep my cap table clean. I'm only taking Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia on no one else because that way my cap table stays clean. I think that's a really foolhardy thing to do because what they're missing out on is this realization that, and I did this initially in my first companies, I was like, no, no, like I'm, I'm not letting in any small investors. I'm only going for the big funds because 
I need to make sure they have the right allocation. I don't want to dilute too much. It just seems like too much work. In reality, though, it's the smallest guys who often are the most helpful because for them, you know, if I get on a big investors, yes, they will be helpful, but I'm one of their maybe, you know, the partner may have a dozen other board seats. You know, I have to basically be the winner in their entire portfolio for them to really pay any real attention to me versus an angel who loves what you're building and who maybe doesn't have a huge portfolio of investments yet um, and who's just willing to do anything for you. And even if they just invested 20K into your company versus the VC that put in 20 million, that guy with the 20K check can actually end up being much more helpful to you. And so it's, I think, therefore, it's a win-win. You know, as an angel, you can convince people to take you on with a safe in between rounds. You can say, look, give me a reasonable cap. Or if you're really gung-ho about it and the company's hot and they really are negotiating hard, you could even consider investing without a cap just on a discount to the next round. Um, you know, there's kind of like these are the two, two sort of basic terms of a safe is either you cap it, meaning, for example, at a 10 million valuation, post money valuation typically is, you know, it's something that as an investor you want to, you prefer. Cause then, you know, if you're investing, let's say 500 K at a 10 million post money valuation, that's going to be 5% of the company. Or if you're investing 100K at 10 million, you know that's 1% of the company, right? Uh, so now you know how much you're getting. Uh, and then sometimes saves come without a cap on at just a discount on the next round. So we don't know what that company is going to end up raising at what valuation, but we know whatever that is, we're getting, let's say, a 20 or 25% discount on that round. And so it's obviously not quite as certain because with a cap, you know, even if they're going to raise at a hundred million valuation, you're always going to convert into that round with an ownership of your ticket being valued at 10 million because it was capped at 10 versus the other way around where it's just a discount, let's say 25% on a hundred million that would make you convert at 75 million. So there's a big difference. Capped safes are always better for investors for this reason. Um, but, you know, this is kind of easy enough to find out if you just Google Y Combinator safe and you look at the different types of safes. There's a lot of documentation about this and excellent blog posts and tweets and so on. It's pretty simple. Um, so that's a useful in- instrument for you to use as an angel. And I recommend that you become familiar with them and the caps and the discounts and how all of that works. Um, so that would be the legal part. Of it, you know, you make sure that you write this documentation that it gets approved by the company and the board, and then you know you basically close. You you sign on the safes. You make sure that the company signs, and then after that, you, you you're ready to wire your ticket. I, I guess when you're looking at uh, you know from from the standpoint of I guess being an angel, you know, you're protected this way. You got the board. And I could, you know, I can see that there's some difficulty if if the board isn't signed off. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to happen for you to get to that point of deploying. I guess a lot of investors, especially maybe early ones, will get very excited. They might want to get ahead of themselves. I trust this person. Oh, I love this idea. I don't want to miss out. Those are all. I mean, I mean, those come with any type of investing, but this is 
slightly different. Um, you know, it, it's not a, you know, it's not a, I guess, an SEC regulated market. You're investing somebody. It's a private investment. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit different. Is that something that's common for for angel investors that they need to watch out for? That euphoria of the, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm doing this. And I got to make sure all these I's and T's that you've been talking about are dotted and crossed. Yeah, I mean, look, like even safes are disfavored by professional venture capitalists because they don't come with a lot of rights. And there are cases I know of um, where the safes never convert because the companies just never raise another round. Um, And so you end up never actually having ownership of the company. You just have this safe that never converts. So there's, um, you know, I would say it's pretty safe. Like in my experience of having done maybe, I don't know, maybe I've invested in 150 companies over my career, something like that, somewhere between 100 and 200 companies. Um, it's, I've never had a case where a company or a founder would have somehow tried to screw me post facto like that i find out later that oh my god like you know they were being dishonest or whatever it's more likely that the companies misrepresent how much traction they have or their actual prospects and then the founder ends up just basically killing the company and and walking away from it so look like the whole thing here is that the tickets should be small enough for you to because you're, you're again, you know, you're you're a professional amateur as an angel, maybe at most, right? It's it's more it's it, you're not operating a, a large legal team, and you're not prepared to necessarily go to court and fight battles. So it's it's the risk that you're taking, and you know, you're op- you're just anticipating both parties are operating in good faith, and that's part of being a good picker is being able to do obviously. Um, and I recommend this for anybody you work with. And I consider these working relationships, these investment relationships, you know, as an angel, you always want to want there to be something more than just a financial transaction, right? You're there because you, you love what they're building and you like the people and you want to help them succeed. And therefore you need to do some diligence on whether these people are legit and trustworthy. So, yeah. Um, but you know, the, the nice part about this whole business is and why I'm even talking about this now is because it is well standardized. There are pra- like best practices. It's done routinely. You know, there are probably thousands of safes signed and transacted each day of the week, every day of the year in Silicon Valley. So, you know, you're not dealing with an unknown entity at all. The other part that it's good to remember is this. Um, notion of an accredited investor. So to qualify as an accredited investor in the U.S., you've got to have over a million in net worth or more than 200000 in earned income in the past two calendar years. So, um, or then you can be like a financial professional. You can do this, you know, kind of an exam um, and, and qualify as an accredited investor. Um, so ideally, you will fill these requirements and you will have basically make more than 200K in income. Um, and then, you know, you qualify as an automatically qualify as an, as an accredited investor. Just do your homework here, depending on where you are, make sure that, um, you know, you're actually accredited if you need to be accredited. Um, 
and you know, obviously, I'm not here to give legal advice to anyone, but I'm just noting this is something that um, you need to research and understand. And again, there's good documentation online about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, none of this is to be construed as financial or legal advice. Obviously, this is your experience and some some of the mechanisms that you've uh, observed. So everyone has to go do their due diligence, get your you know legal financial counsel if you if you need. This is a uh, you know this is real money. So. Uh, obviously, the disclaimer aside, um, I guess the, the the other component to to touch on um, uh, but before we wrap up, because I want to make sure we touched on it. Uh, obviously, you mentioned founders; um, it, it helps them um, with their business when they're investing. Um, if I'm an executive, if I'm a VP of engineering, I'm a CTO. Um, how how does this become beneficial to me? Obviously, not just from a financial I, I, aspect of okay, I have these opportunities I've invested, but what are what are some of the other benefits of of being an angel that yeah that you've seen? Yeah, well, the big benefit is that you're now you have this new arrow in your quiver for expanding your network um, because when you the people just you know, become much more open to discussing what their plans with you when they realize that you could potentially invest in them, right? Maybe they're just starting out. Maybe they have an idea. They don't even have a company yet. Um, but it just turns the conversation kind of into something where now there's a potential relationship that maybe didn't exist before, Right. Um, maybe it's not consummated yet, but in the future. So I just think it's so beneficial for you to kind of approach the world with this eyeglasses of an investor, so to speak, because you also begin to look at everything around you, every person you meet, every coworker in your company that on your team or the other team, there's some superstar somewhere. You go out to lunch or coffee with them. You're, hey, like, you know, they tell you, oh, they're thinking about actually leaving the, the big company to start their own startup. You know, previously you might have been like, oh, that's a bummer. I loved working with this, this, this woman or this guy. And, uh, I'm sad to see them go. But now that turns into an opportunity where you can be like, oh, great. You're leaving to start your own company. Tell me more because I actually angel invest, right? So I just find it a fantastic way to maintain relationships and cultivate them, you know, and it's, it's a fantastic way you can have, you know, it's kind of your calling card. Now, like I said, you go to events, um, you network, you go on a hike with someone, you go skiing in Tahoe, whatever it is. Um, and you meet people and anyone will now talk to you, right? Because you're an investor. And the other thing it makes you do as a founder, and I say this a lot, you know, to founders that come to pitch is try to step aside uh, from your founder identity for a moment and just look at your own business as an investor. Would you invest in this? If you were an angel investor, just looking at deals, um, you know, and, and it's sometimes very eye opening to founders because they're so used to pitching. Um, and I can say, well, let's just think about this because ultimately what you've identified is probably an exciting opportunity. Otherwise you wouldn't be working on it. But oftentimes, that's not the problem. What the problem is, is that you might not be the best person in the world or the best team in the world to actually solve this problem and win. Because there's someone who's obviously stronger than you already out there. Then 
you know, that's a problem if you only have your founder glasses on because now you're like, shit, I have to compete with this person or this other team. Like, you know, I had this when I was running a company, my first company, Jaiku, and I was competing with Twitter and Facebook, you know, so I was competing with Mark Zuckerberg and I was competing with Ed Williams, who at the time was running Twitter. And, you know, um, and I ended up having like merger conversations with Twitter or whatever. And, you know, um, getting acquisition offers from other companies. So, so, but, you know, looking back, if I was thinking about it as an investor, I might have said, oh, well, maybe it is actually a good idea for us to merge with Twitter or with Facebook, because I can see that Mark over there has serious traction. It's like, you know, 100x the traction of our company or even Ev's company. And, you know, um, looks like Facebook is likely to be the winner here. So, um, you know, again, as a founder, it's sometimes hard to do that because you're thinking, I got to compete. I got to outcompete them. I got to beat them some way. But if you're thinking about it as an investor, you could be like, oh, going back to, um, you know, I think I can pick the winner now that I know this space so well, because frankly, I'm in the space myself. Remember those ways to get ownership. What I really need to do is just get ownership in the winner. Um, so I can invest cash in my competitor, which, you know, frankly, a lot of people, especially in China do like the Chinese entrepreneurs weirdly are always angel investing in their competitor in competitors companies, even though they're like bloody rivals, which I find, find kind of crazy. I could join as an employee, meaning I could try to get acquired hired maybe by this winning company, or I could try to, you know, um, find another way. Right. So it just liberates you actually to say, Oh, um, you know, I, or maybe sometimes like in just, you know, yesterday I was talking with a founder and we decided actually the best thing for us to do is to see if she can raise enough capital to actually acquire her competitor and then combine it with this other thing and pivot it into something that would, could be, you know, 10 or a hundred times more, more valuable than the competitor. So sometimes it just gives you these new tools where you can, I can say like as an investor, I'm not interested in investing in your startup as such, but I would be interested in raising a 10 times larger round, acquiring that other company and then building your thing, you know? So just noting that this can actually open up new vistas for you as a founder when you're just putting on the glasses of an investor and looking at your own company from the outside. Gary, that's, I mean, this is uh, fantastic. I mean, it's the tip of the iceberg. Um, I could probably have you keep going because I think there's other areas to dive into. I'm cognizant uh, of your time. If somebody wants to reach out to you, obviously we, we've covered a lot of different areas. I, I can get deeper in it. Are, are you okay if somebody wants to reach out on LinkedIn or, or a different way to kind of ask you a question or follow up on any of uh, what you've talked about today? Oh, yeah. At Yuri, at J-Y-R-I on Twitter or email me at my first name, Yuri, J-Y-R-I at yes.bc. I'd love it. Okay. Yuri, thanks for coming on. Uh, we'll make sure we include those links so people can reach out. You've, you've, you've covered a lot of ground, and I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Thank you. It was great to be on the show. Absolutely. That's it for the episode. We'll be back again, different guests, different topic. Um, if you did find this uh, topic uh, helpful, share it with somebody else. Hopefully, they can also uh, gain some uh, insights and value. Reach out to Yuri if you do have any follow-ups for him. Uh, like, subscribe, comment, leave a review someplace. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know how we can improve. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.